we have entered a new era in U.S. presidential politics. When the facts don't bear out the narrative we seek to sell the public on, we make up our own, applaud ourselves, and the media accepts it as true. They do not challenge it, and actually do their best to make believe they believe it also, so all of you will believe it. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go to either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, depending which device you use, and you can simply search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and subscribe that way. In the alternative, you can go to those two Play Stores and you can download the free Podbean app. Because podbean.com is our hosting service. You can search out the Jamie Dury Show there, and you can follow us and you can subscribe. Either way you choose, you will be able to leave comments, leave reviews. We anxiously await more of both. The more we have of those, the more we'll be able to serve you and give you a better uh, experience overall on this podcast. So please give us a good five-star review and help us out. So what was I referring to in my opening monologue when I spoke about when the facts don't bear out the narrative we seek to sell the public, we make up our own? Well, I'm, of course, referring to the State of the Union address by the benighted president of the United States, Joe Biden, a man who doesn't even know he's alive. Now, I'm not trying to say that to be disrespectful. I'm quoting fact. If you are an unbiased, clear-thinking man or woman, and you've watched this man day in and day out for the past two years, you can't possibly believe that he's in command of his faculties or knows what he's doing. You just can't possibly believe that. It's very clear that he has dementia. It's extremely clear. And yet they prop him up. Now, I listened to the speech, even though I didn't want to, but I have to because this is what I do. I do podcasts. I have to listen to it. And I stopped counting all the lies. So let's just hit on a couple of the bigger ones. Quote, when I took office, the economy was reeling. False. Anybody with a clear head knows that's false. The economy was booming. The economy had been booming under Trump. He had record low unemployment numbers. He had record growth. The stock market was through the roof. Interest rates were almost non-existent. And gasoline was under $2 a gallon when Trump left office. Now, there was a reduction in the stock market as a consequence of the COVID uh, outbreak. But that was in the early portion of 2020. By the time the election rolled around, the economy was already back in action. Things were popping. Things were moving. So that was just a gross lie. And the fact that no one in the media calls him on it, and the fact that Democrats stand up and applaud, is ridiculous. To try and say that he created 12 million new jobs is a complete falsehood. Now, you can't just make up numbers because that's what you want it to say. First of all, he counted all the jobs that people left or lost as a result of COVID. 
went back into the Trump era and took credit for those numbers. And as people came back to work and then a few more jobs were created, he comes up with this $12 million figure. It's completely inaccurate. It's completely false. Then the second big lie. When I took office, the country was still under lockdown from COVID. It's complete nonsense. Even liberal states like New York were fully open by the fall of 2020, long before Joe Biden ever took office. But even the most dedicated of liars occasionally tell the truth, even when they don't mean to. Then we had this jewel. My father told me, Joe, a job is about more than just a paycheck. Well, truer words were never spoken. And we certainly know that in Joe Biden's case, it has always been about how much he can steal in addition to what he gets in his paycheck. This State of the Union address didn't fool anyone. Four out of ten Americans who watched it gave that speech a thumbs down. A poll was taken. 39% of Americans consider the State of the Union strong, far lower than under Donald Trump, according to a new poll. Quote, roughly four in ten American adults felt optimistic about the annual State of the Union address ahead of the joint session of Congress on Tuesday, according to a new poll. According to a Mammoth University poll conducted in late January and published on Monday, about 32% of Americans said the event is somewhat strong, while just 7% call the event very strong. Nearly 60% of people polled deem the event not too strong or not at all strong. The number of Americans who feel optimistic about the event's strength has steadily declined over the past five years from 55% in 2018, when former President Donald Trump was in office, to just 39% in the current poll. That's a pretty big drop, 16%. Likewise, the viewership for this year's State of the Union, also saw a sharp decline. The second smallest audience in at least 30 years. That tells you that people either are not interested in what Joe Biden has to say because they know he's not running the country, or apathy has reached an all-time high. It is estimated that only about 27.3 million people watch Joe Biden's speech live on television. That's down 28% from the 38.2 million people who saw the address last year, 2022. The only smaller audience since 1993 was the 26.9 million who watched Biden's address to Congress, which was not officially a State of the Union address since he had just taken office a few months earlier. Now, the Nielsen Rating Company, you're all familiar with, it's a global leader. It doesn't have any figures before President Clinton's first address to Congress, which reached 66.9 million people in 1993. And I have to say that I was kind of surprised by that, because Nielsen ratings have been around for decades upon decades, probably as long as I can remember from the earliest days of television. And I can't 
possibly believe they don't have any tracking on State of the Union addresses. It should be one of the most watched things in the country. Another poll, uh, the, actually the same poll, and this poll surveyed about 805 adults in the U.S. from January 26th to January 30th, found that 60% of Americans feel the current government has a negative impact on most people's lives, while only 16% said Washington has a positive impact. And 22% said it has little impact in either way. Among those who feel the government has a negative impact, nearly 70% feel that Washington could shift in a positive direction and have a good impact in people's lives. That number was different for both Republicans and Democrats. Now, before we dig a little deeper into this poll, I want to answer a question that's probably on many of your minds. How do we get an accurate poll of a country of 330 million people by polling not even 1,000 respondents? Well, that is the beauty of polls. The only true way to know what every adult is thinking is to ask every adult and record their messages, and this is simply impractical. Instead, we have stratified polling. We look at demographics, we select people from certain demographic groups, from certain focus groups, and the sample that we produce within the standard of deviation, which is a mathematical term, represents, if it's extrapolated out, what would be the result if we did poll the country at large. And the standard of deviation is usually uh, factored in there to uh, allow for the variances that are going to take place from reality to the sample size. So when they say this poll has a a standard of deviation or accuracy rating of plus or minus 3.5 percentage points, that means if they say 50% of the country feels this way, It could, in actuality, be 53.5%, or it could be 46.5%, but it's pretty, pretty accurate. So you have a swing there. When people in this poll were asked if they believed the country was on the right track, 73% said it was on the wrong track. But there was a strong partisan divide. Only 6% of Republicans said the country is heading in the right direction. More than half of Democratic respondents agree with the 94% of Republicans who believe the country's on the wrong track. Now, that's pretty interesting. 94% of all Republican respondents feel the country's on the wrong track. But more than 50% of all the Democrats also felt the country's on the wrong track. Now, if that's the way the Democrats felt, independents probably fell somewhere in between. And that tells me that unless some kind of miracle happens, I don't know how anyone could think that Joe Biden in a legitimate election could possibly be reelected. Many people that voted for Joe Biden the last time out um, have said publicly in polls that if they had known about the Hunter Biden information, if it wasn't suppressed, they would never have voted for Joe Biden. I still believe there was actual manipulation of votes, but there is no doubt, especially what we know that has come out from Twitter, that there was manipulation of public opinion through the suppression of facts that mattered so that people would change their choice 
from the choice that they made what they should, what they would have made. And this is one of the main reasons why I'm against all this early voting and mail-in voting nonsense, because many facts that you should be basing your decision on don't come to light at the time you cast your vote. The closer you can get to the actual election day to cast your vote, the more complete information you're operating on when you make your decision. And any monkey business that takes place on the actual day of the election disproportionately affects and suppresses Republican votes because, for whatever reason, tradition, whatever, more Republicans vote on Election Day than early vote compared to Democrats who prefer to early vote. So this is a problem. This is a big, big problem. And I think the only way to eradicate it and eliminate it is getting back to an actual Election Day in this country, not election weeks. Now, lest any of you think that manipulation of public opinion is no longer an issue simply because some Republicans have gotten in control of Congress and they're holding hearings and they're bringing executives from Twitter and Facebook and other social media companies and the FBI before committees on the weaponization of government against the American people, uh, you're wrong. Manipulation is occurring. The media in particular wants to shape the election. And when the media is against someone, then you know you should be for that person because the media is against the American public. It's the media that's sitting there applauding, along with the Democratic Confederates in Congress, these falsehoods that I've just enumerated that Joe Biden is uttering on a daily basis and uttered in his State of the Union address. You can't possibly claim to be an unbiased defender of the truth, if you're going to allow to go unchallenged these assertions that the economy was reeling when he took office and the country was locked down when he took office and that, oh, another big one, that Republicans want to take away Social Security and Medicare from senior citizens. One Republican congressman floated an idea for a bill which was not well-received, and suddenly the Republican Party and every Republican as a whole wants to do these things. It was a shameless, shameless attempt at dividing and conquering, and it didn't go over well. It backfired. And he was booed terribly by the GOP contingent uh, in Congress for that speech. But this is the type of thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on is the continued demonization of Donald Trump. Now, I'll admit that Trump doesn't always hurt himself, uh, doesn't, I'm sorry, doesn't always help himself uh, by attacking certain people, but he has a quite an understandable bitterness at the way he has been treated, and sometimes I think it causes him to maybe lash out in directions he shouldn't. But if you think I'm believing these phone calls that go into these talk shows that I listen to regularly in order to gauge public opinion, where they're saying, that's it, I'll never vote for Trump a third time after what he did to DeSantis and this and that and the other thing. If you can be that quickly swayed from Trump, I wonder how much of a true Trump supporter you really were, or if you are as intelligent as you think. But I'm going to try and offer you some explanation, and I'm going to try and offer you some advice about things that you really should consider long and hard before you consider abandoning Trump.
The mainstream media wants no part of Trump. They do not want him running because they fear him. And they have a right to fear him. Because if reelected, Donald Trump, having already served one term, as I've said many times before in this show, cannot run again. He is a one-term president. And most first-term presidents have one asset and one weakness, and they both emanate from the same thing. Their asset is they can run again. So people have to be careful if they cross him. Their weakness is they have to run again, or they want to run again. And therefore, they have to curry favor with certain people. Donald Trump is not concerned about running again. He's not worried about making any more enemies. It's his business. He knows that there are forces allied against him. Therefore, he doesn't have to worry about currying favor with anyone, and he will do what needs to be done. He's the only one that has that advantage. He's the only one that has that strength of will to hold up to the forces of evil and try and do what needs to be done. DeSantis is a good man. He's an excellent governor of Florida, maybe one of the best that Florida's ever had. And I'm sure he's an honest man. But as a first-term president, he wants what every first-term administration wants, a second term. And he would not go flat out to attack the establishment the way Trump did. Secondly, the notion that Trump is uh, not popular anymore or people have Trump fatigue, this is again all a product of the media. Over 96% of the candidates that Trump endorsed in the midterm elections won. If people were that fatigued with Trump, they wouldn't be supporting the people that he's supporting. And only Trump can get people elected in Congress with those kind of coattails and get people who will pledge to try and fight for the one thing that we need to save this country, term limits. Because if any of you out there actually believe that the 535 people we have in the House of Representatives and the Senate right now best represent the best that America has to offer, I think you're smoking funny cigarettes. Half of those people look like they couldn't hold a job if their life depended on it. Look at AOC, a bartender. You take her, Tlaib, Ilan Omar... And the rest of them, add them all up in terms of their IQ, and you won't have an IQ the size of a pencil eraser. They couldn't do a thing in the private sector. But the mainstream media wants you to believe that people have Trump fatigue. Well, one man doesn't think that the media has Trump fatigue. Doesn't think so at all. The man that Trump uh, happened to meet on a golf course man by the name of Stephen Stepanek. He's a New Hampshire man who happened to follow his wife's advice one day and said hi to Donald Trump at a golf course over 10 years ago. He is now the guy that Trump has chosen to be his strategist in what still is the most important state for a presidential candidate to win in the presidential primary cycle. Now, tradition holds that the Iowa caucuses were the first thing that takes place in the presidential cycle. And it's always 
a good sign if you win the Iowa caucuses. The first actual primary, though, is always the New Hampshire primary. Uh, And Trump, the last time, mowed down everyone in the New Hampshire primary on the Republican side and won every possible voter demographic group uh, that you could possibly think of, people for this, people against. He won every single group. I listened to an excellent breakdown of it that year on the Rush Limbaugh show, the late, great Rush Limbaugh. But it was true. He won every single demographic group. And I think the Democrats and the news media know that if Trump wants the nomination again, he's going to get it. Megyn Kelly, who was not a Trump fan but made peace with him, said flat out, the MAGA faithful will never abandon Trump for DeSantis. They like DeSantis. They think he's a good governor, but they don't think it's his turn. They don't think it's his turn because they think Trump was screwed out of his reelection, and they think Trump, to a large degree, was even screwed out of his first term because of all these distractions with these investigations that led nowhere because there was nothing to investigate, there was nothing to find. And so they're going to vote for Donald Trump. The other thing is, as I've said before, Donald Trump has to get in there and clean house, and he's the only one who can do it. So anybody who's thinking about a dream team of Trump-DeSantis running one and two, uh, I would be against that ticket. Because whatever Trump is going to do, although it's going to be necessary, is going to be a little divisive in terms of the Democrats because they don't like him to begin with. And they're certainly not going to like it if he tries to bring back honesty to the Congress by having term limits. So whatever negative residual taste there is from some of these necessary things that he's going to have to do, I don't think DeSantis should be associated with it in any way. Because after Trump, the GOP is going to need someone to put up. And DeSantis is the most high-profile, best, most conservative choice, capable of winning that we could make. And the one thing that could damage him is if he's associated with this necessary house cleaning that Donald Trump is going to have to do. So I think it's a very wise thing to position DeSantis outside the Trump administration so that if need be, he can distance himself from anything that was done in the second Trump administration in order to run again. And he could run for two terms. So that's one strategy. That's one thing you have to consider. Now, it's also pretty obvious that the Democrats think that Trump can win these primaries. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done this. The DNC, on February 4th, voted to move or shove the New Hampshire and Iowa primary and caucuses aside and have the South Carolina primary be the top of the list. The Democratic National Committee voted Saturday, February 4th, to change their long-standing tradition of holding the first presidential primaries in New Hampshire and Iowa, pushing aside those states and moving up South Carolina and Michigan. The new lineup calls for South Carolina to vote on February 3rd, followed by Nevada and New Hampshire on February 6th, Georgia on February 13th, 
and then Michigan on February 27th. The move is an effort to diversify the demographics of early voting states to better reflect the Democrat base. Folks, the Democratic Party looks like America, and so does this proposal, said Democratic Party Chairman Jamie Harrison ahead of the vote, adding it elevates the backbone of our party. Well, first of all, before we go any further, let's just make a brief comment about that comment. If you really think the Democratic Party looks like America, then you're out of your mind. I don't think America looks like uh, drag queen story time, he, her, it, us, we, they pronouns. Uh, I really don't. I think all of this weirdness, this transgenderism that they want to not only accept, look, if people want to do that, fine, but you want affirmation that it's normal, that these people are not mentally uh, afflicted, not having it. The, the Democratic Party is so out of touch with America, it's not even funny. I mentioned this to you a few months back in a show, that of all the demographic groups you could look at that vote, and you break it down this way, college-educated Democrats, non-high school-educated Democrats, college-educated Republicans, non-college-educated Republicans, college-educated independents, non-college-educated independents. Of those six demographic groups, the only group that felt the mainstream media and the Democratic Party, which are basically one and the same, spoke for them and to them were college-educated Democrats. Now, why should this surprise anyone? Because the media is composed primarily of college-educated Democrats. So the media and the Democratic Party have become nothing more than an echo chamber for themselves. So believe none of this crap when you read it, because it's written by Democrats, or it's spoken by Democrats, for Democrats. They're the only ones that are listening to it, and they're the only ones that should be believing it, because it's just not true. But what is true is that they don't want Donald Trump to ever appear to be in the lead. Now, implicit, in this article I'm reading from Red State, implicit, it says, in this statement by Jamie Harrison, is that Harrison feels that New Hampshire and Iowa don't look like America. That must not feel very good to those folks living in those states. Another reason for the change, which was backed by Joe Biden, is that he performed badly in the early primaries in 2020 and almost had to step out of the race. It was South Carolina that saved him, where he dominated the vote with 48.6% choosing him over the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So they're doing this. So that at the beginning of the race, it makes Joe Biden look much stronger vis-a-vis Donald Trump than he otherwise would. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, when they called those states, they deliberately delayed calling states that they knew Trump was going to win because they wanted this subterfuge, this theft of the election to be complete in its appearance by making sure that at no point in the evening once these major states rolled in, would Donald Trump ever appear to be in the lead? They wanted to make it look like he was always coming from behind. 
They never wanted to have him in the lead. Look how they deliberately waited to call Arizona with virtually no justification for doing it when Florida was over and done with and beyond reach for Biden, and they delayed. They wouldn't call it because they didn't want to give those 29 votes to Trump before they gave the 11 to Biden from Arizona, because otherwise Trump would have been in the lead on the national electoral map. And they couldn't simply have that. They just couldn't. Now, when Biden came back in South Carolina because Jim Clyburn gave him a strong endorsement, and that motivated the black voter turnout that went heavily in Biden's favor. And so now, having South Carolina moved up as the first primary is Biden's thank you gift back to Biden. This change also is going to smack in the head other would-be candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who has done nothing as Transportation Secretary, and Amy Klobuchar, uh, who made a little attempt to try and get a nomination. If South Carolina goes first, they'll drop out right after the vote because they're going to get crushed. The voter demographic in South Carolina is not going to support a man like Peter Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, who comes from a very liberal state. So this is strategic to try and prop up a very weak and failing president and to try and hurt uh, Donald Trump. But if Donald Trump is so bad in terms of Trump fatigue, if people are really that tired of him, if he really is on self-destruct and putting his foot in his mouth, why do you have to go through all this to destroy him? Because they're not confident they can destroy him, and they know that this Trump fatigue nonsense isn't true. So now let's get back to this uh, fellow I was talking about, Stephen Stepanak. He is now Donald Trump's campaign strategist for New Hampshire. And he vehemently believes that the new primary calendar is going to play zero influence on what happens. And he believes the real ulterior motive uh, behind the move is to bump Donald Trump from being the lead candidate, just as he was in 2016 and 2020, when he clinched all 22 pledged delegates in the nas- to the National Convention, and he got a historic 129,730 votes, which outdid the previous record held by Bill Clinton back in uh, 1976. Wait, no. That can't be wrong. That's a misprint. Not 76. Had to be 1992. In 76, Jimmy Carter ran. A record of 76,797. Now, Mr. Stabenak, for his part, has an unshakable confidence that Trump will be the Republican nominee and the uh, president-elect. And he believes that despite Like I said before, all these recently coined phrases as Trump fatigue and charges that Trumpism has taken a shellacking, not just by Democrats, but by party leaders within. At the end of the day, Stepanak Stepanak says, the voters who yearn for the days when their lives were so much better under the Trump administration are the ones who are going to put him back uh, in office. My biggest uh, fear, my biggest fear, is not that Trump couldn't legitimately be elected. It's that there'll be hanky-panky 
with the votes. And I think that the GOP Congress is going to have to really do what they can to make sure this doesn't happen again. And they're really going to have to put some pressure on the states to make sure there's no monkey business. Because I firmly believe, based on what happened in the 2022 midterms, the thing that people, again, still don't talk about, that going forward, the GOP is going to have a lot more sway and power in Congress than they've had in quite some time. I'm going to go back to that in a minute. But this this fellow, Stepanak, he makes some comments in this article that basically uh, validate and agree with many of the points that I've been making. He's talking about how uh, all these people calling for pe- calling for Trump to step aside, like um, the Hillsborough County GOP chairman, which is a county in New Hampshire, Chris Maidment, told Reuters back in January that New Hampshire Republican members were suffering from Trump fatigue and that they were ready for other candidates. And Bill Barr, the former attorney general, who's been calling for two years for Trump to step aside for Republicans. And he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Post because he doesn't have the qualities required to win the kind of broad, durable victory I see as necessary to restore America. And then there's... uh, DeSantis, that they're saying that people are going to leave Trump for DeSantis, uh, and that other uh, people, Nikki Haley, Christy Nome, Ted Cruz, and Mike Pence, to name a few, have gotten their share of nudges from Trump defectors saying to it, saying that he they should run. There's also been hints from New Hampshire's governor Chris Sununo, a Republican, that he may make a run for the presidential nomination, and that's something that could possibly upset a Trump victory in New Hampshire, the first primary for the Republicans. But Stepanak points out, as I pointed out, that DeSantis, Sununu, and the rest will never, quote, risk the wrath of standing up to the secret government like Trump has or continue where he left off in draining the swamp. And there are literally signs everywhere that the average Joes of New Hampshire know that. Quote, if you drive around New Hampshire, you see not one or two, not 10 or 20, but hundreds, if not thousands of Trump flags. Trump signs are all over the state. I don't see any DeSantis signs and I don't see any Nikki Haley signs. And let me tell you something, my friends, I've been saying this for some time. We are in a war We are in a war. We are in a war for the very soul of this country. We are in a war against a socialist communist wave, the likes of which I have not seen in my entire adult life. If you hearken back to my very first broadcast of the Jamie Dury Show, when we broadcast it under a different name, National Preview Online, um, I told you that the real decline in America began as I saw it when the Clintons took when Bill Clinton took office and his two terms allowed him to shove the bureaucracies full with people who were career leftists and George W. Bush distracted as he was by terrorist threats in the wars in Iraq didn't really do what he needed to do or should have done to stop it and he's an establishment guy himself and then Obama got eight years and just made it worse And then with that and the 
rise of the social media, which is all in the pocket of the left. This country has moved so quickly and rapidly to the left, it's not even funny in terms of what the government wants. But the people still don't want it. The majority of of the people are not for this. That's why they voted for Trump in 2016. And as much as he may have uh, his negative qualities with saying things that people don't like, I still think his positive qualities far outweigh any negatives. And I don't feel like they are negative qualities because I understand where the man's coming from. They recognize that he's the only one that can stand up to this shadow government. And there is a shadow government because we already know that Joe Biden is not running the country. Barack Obama is still running the country. Him and Valerie Jarrett. And because he can't run again, there are movements afoot to try and run this Michelle Obama. And Michelle Obama is a disaster. She is no more qualified than Hillary Clinton, maybe even less qualified. And that's not to say that Hillary Clinton is qualified. But you'd have to get somebody like uh, Michelle Obama to run to say that Hillary Clinton is more qualified than anyone. She's never been elected to anything other than that carpet-bagging Senate spot. And she only got that because her husband was the former president of the United States. Michelle Obama is more radical than Barack Obama ever thought to be. And the country would really be finished if we had her as the president of the United States. But the country is getting redder. And you can see this. Despite what they're telling you, that people want this and they want woke and they want that, the country is getting redder. The big untold story that people still don't want to talk about in the 2022 election Yes, we didn't get the total red wave we wanted to the extent that we wanted it. We did get control of Congress, but we didn't get the complete red wave we wanted because of some manipulation with things. I still say that Arizona was a, was a theft of the governorship. But what we did see is that red states got redder and blue states got bluer. But the real difference there is that the red states got redder as a result of population increases of red, primarily red voters fleeing blue states and therefore not upsetting the red balance of those states. And blue states getting bluer, not because of a population increase of blue voters, but because a, of a flight of, blue vo- of red voters. And in New York, that worked to our detriment here in my home state of New York. Because Kathy Hochul's margin of victory against Lee Zeldin, congressman from Long Island, was approximately the 300,000 equivalent of the people that left New York for places like Florida and Texas. Had those people stayed, they would have, without question, voted for Lee Zeldin. Instead, They elected to vote with their feet, and they left the state. But what this means is that as time goes by, red states are going to pick up more and more electoral votes because they're going to get more and more congressional representation as a result of their population increases. We've already seen this. New York had well over 35 or 38 electoral votes when I was a kid and voting for Ronald Reagan. Even as recently as... Um, the 2000 election when George W. Bush ran, 
New York had over 30 electoral votes, and Florida only had, I think, 25. Florida now has 31 electoral votes. New York's got about 27 or 20, 28 or 27, I think. It's going down and down. So as long as states like Florida, having over 31 votes, and Texas, with over 40 votes, they're going to eclipse states like California with 54 votes. States like Ohio had 20 electoral votes when George W. Bush ran. It has more than that now. I think it's got 22 or 23 electoral votes. So as these red states gain electoral votes, we're going to have no difficulty in maintaining control of Congress, getting more senators, getting more governors on a national level, more congressmen, and the blue states will become less and less relevant. And if that happens, then it won't matter that they change the rules of how senators are elected back in the early days of the 19th century, because prior to that time, people didn't vote for senators because senators don't represent the people. They were designed to represent the states themselves as entities. That's why there's 100 senators. That's why every state gets two senators, whether they're a nothing state like Vermont with virtually no one living in it, or a state like California with 33 million people living in it because they represent the sovereign state of California and Vermont and all the other 48. And each state is an equal partner in the republic, regardless of population. And so they were supposed to be selected by the state legislatures, since they were representing them, not the people. The people's vote was in the House of Representatives. But even that's been corrupted. But if this population shift, this demographic shift, this migration to the red states from the blue states continue, then all of that will be immaterial because we will once again capture the Congress. And that is the only thing that's going to save the country. That and Donald Trump fighting for term limits with candidates elected to Congress that he's endorsed. So all of you out there who are looking for hope, if you're a person like me who grew to believe in Donald Trump in 2016 and voted for him, if you're a person like me who thought he did a great job as president and you'd like to see those days return, but you've been getting a little self-doubt because of the pressure and the falsehoods you're reading in the media, this is time to stiffen your resolve. Stay focused to the mission. The country does not have Trump fatigue. The people do not have Trump fatigue. They recognize that a second Trump term is absolutely necessary to clean out the corrupt FBI, to clean out this weaponization of government against the people, which the other candidates may pay lip service to, but they just don't have the strength of character to do. And the fact that they're going to want to win a re-election for a second term is going to prevent them from doing it. We need Donald Trump. So, don't lose heart. Stay the course. It doesn't matter all of this nonsense that you have. These, the January 6th storming of the Capitol that they keep trying to not let die, these new allegations of, uh, of the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. People don't want to buy into this nonsense. They know it's bullshit. As Democrats run ads 
filled with these controversies. Um, you have uh, going to have great campaigns coming out showing Trump standing next to the now rusting massive pieces of the border wall he attempted to build and complete where illegal aliens are coming in by the droves over the border. And when you have that, and people are going to start seeing that again on the news, because not just because red states are pointing it out, when you have places like New York City asking to be rescued from their own devices, you know that issues are real. I live in New York. I worked in New York. I was a lifelong New Yorker. I loved New York. There was so much to recommend it, even despite some of the liberals that were here. There was so much to recommend. The beauty of upstate New York, uh, the wine country of New York, the culture that was here, it's all gone. Illegal immigrants have taken over. Uh, immigrants have taken over. They refuse housing when provided for them by the state and want to continue to stay in $400 a night hotels. They are stealing jobs from people. They are causing crime. There are bums everywhere you turn. These issues do not escape the average Joe and Jane working for a living every day that have to go out into the world and see this stuff. And they're the ones that are going to vote for Donald Trump and believe in Donald Trump, despite what they say on CNN, despite what they say on MSNBC, or on Meet the Depressed. So keep your powder dry. Get ready for the war. If you love this country and want to see it salvaged, you'll know what to do. For the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury.